Well, I'd invite you to turn to our scripture passage. Today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 31 to 39. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here and really glad to have you uh, worshiping with us on this Easter uh, Sunday and would love to get to know you better if you fill out the connect card or if there's any ways we can pray for you. That would really be our privilege uh, to be able to care for you uh, in whatever way uh, we can. Well, uh, let's look at our scripture passage today, uh, Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that as we come to this glorious passage that I feel so inadequate to explain and to convey the majesty of, we ask that your spirit would be at work in my weakness, in my limitations. Father, you know everybody here. You know their story. You know what is on their hearts. You know their fears. You know their guilt and their shame. And we ask now that through the power of your spirit that you would take my humble words and use them to work an extraordinary supernatural change in every single person here, that you would build us up to look more and more like Christ through your powerful word. And so we pray that you would do these things in Christ's name. Amen. The first day of spring this year was April 20th. And I don't know if you remember, but it snowed that day. (laughs) And the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. And actually, it wasn't till five days after the start of spring that we had a single day where we didn't have any snow. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, I generally love snow. I grew up skiing. I love waking up to a fresh blanket of snow in the morning. I enjoy driving in the snow. I even enjoy shoveling snow, but this was getting a little bit ridiculous. A week after the start of spring, I took a very quick trip up to Kalispell, Montana, which is just an hour south 
of the Canadian border. It's right near Glacier National Park. And it was warmer there than where back here in Utah. What do you do when the calendar says it's spring, but it feels like you're stuck in winter? Today's Easter Sunday, and I think, you know, Christians, we often talk about celebrating Easter, or we act joyful, and frankly, at this point, we will celebrate any day that is above 50 degrees. Who's going to throw a party tomorrow if we break 70? I'm sure we will all be outside basking in the sun. But I think if we're honest, Easter can feel a little bit like the first day of spring this year, where the calendar says it's spring, but you still have to shovel snow. And Easter is a message of hope and resurrection, but you still feel like you face death all day long. Week after week, you face suffering, and you wonder what hope there actually is. We live in an age of anxiety, where the bad news vastly outweighs the good news, not just in the headlines, but in your own lives, where there is I'm sure for every single one of you here, a lot of things that you are dealing with this week and that you're anxious about and that weigh you down. And it's hard to believe it's spring when you wake up to a foot of snow in April. And it's hard to believe in a resurrection hope when the bad news just keeps coming. This is probably why people have said we also live in an age of distraction, where we want to distract ourselves from that reality, that pain, that suffering. We want something to take our mind off of how miserable we can feel most of the time. Uh, It's what Ernest Becker wrote a number of years back when he said, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness. Or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. And he wrote that before Amazon. (laughs) We have this feeling that we were made for more. But life is also full of so many disappointments. And it's hard to be hopeful after your heart's been broken again and again and again. And so we turn to diversions, things that distract us from our present pain. Sports, social media, shopping, addictions, money, alcohol. Those things maybe provide a temporary high or they numb some of the pain, but they don't satisfy. They numb, but they don't fill your soul. And frankly, Easter Sunday can sometimes feel just like another distraction, a day to act happy and have some good food and see your kids count how many eggs they got and then fight about who got more eggs than the other one. But you wonder if it really gets to the heart of what the issue is. And that's why I picked this passage today. Maybe it's not the most traditional Easter passage, but I like it because it shows us the implications of the resurrection. Why does Easter Sunday actually matter in your life? Why does Easter Sunday change the rest of history? And this is the only thing I really want you to remember this morning, is that God's love is stronger God's love is stronger than whatever it is you face, whatever evil there is in the world, whatever darkness there is, God's love is stronger than that. And we're going to look at it just in three ways. First, the death, and then the resurrection, and then some of the implications of that. So the death first. 
Before you can understand the resurrection, you need to first understand the death. It's hard for something to be resurrected if it hasn't first died. And we see that in our passage, verse 32. God the Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Or verse 34, Christ Jesus who died. Now, why do Christians spend so much time talking about Christ's death? Well, we have some clues in our passage. Verse 33, whom will bring any charge against those God has chosen? Now, this is some legal language, a charge, right? And many of us, I think, are living in something like a mental courtroom where you face all kinds of charges all day long. And what are the charges? Why did I screw that up again? Why does my boss not recognize how hard I'm working? I failed as a parent. Why can't I seem to do anything right? I can't get good grades. I'm not a good mom. Why would anyone ask me out on a date? And we live in this world where you have these charges, this mental courtroom, and so you either mount a defense, right? You get angry. Well, they're just ungrateful. Don't they see everything that I've done for them? I'll show them how smart I am. I'll show my parents that I'm successful. I'll make them jealous. Or you give in to the charges. And you say, I guess I am a failure. I guess I am dumb. I don't think anyone could ever love me. Tim Keller writes, the problem with self-esteem, whether it's high or low, is that every single day we are in the courtroom. Probably many of you feel that. And it's not just because, and that's why we seek all of these diversions, all these things to distract us because you and I are worn out from living in the courtroom every single day trying to prove your worth, not just to others, but even to yourself. And so why then can Paul in our passage, who wrote this text, write, who then is the one who condemns? And you hear that and you think, well, every day I feel condemnation. And what is the answer to the courtroom? To end the courtroom drama, Christ Jesus died. What, what, why does someone die in the context of a trial? It's because they've been judged guilty and sentenced to death. So can you see the argument that Paul is making here? That why can no one bring a charge against you? Because Jesus has already been charged guilty. Why can no one condemn you? Because Jesus Christ was condemned in your place. I don't know of another religion that has such a profound answer to that courtroom drama that every one of us spend our life in. It acknowledges that we all screw up, that we are worse, worse sinners than we want to admit. And yet, it says there is still hope for the worst of sinners. Why do so many of us sink into these diversions that we kind of numb our life away with? Because deep down, you and I worry that we are guilty, more guilty than we want to admit even to ourselves. Why do so many of us want to always achieve more and more and maybe do more good things and more good things? Because we want to have something to look at to outweigh all the bad we've done in our life. 
And that doesn't take you out of the courtroom drama. It just puts you on that hamster wheel of always trying to, that it never ends. The trial will never be over. But Christianity says, yes, you've screwed up, but Christ has been condemned in your place. Christianity is the one faith that allows you to be honest about your sin, your screw-ups, and still offer you hope. You don't have to keep living in denial. Jesus doesn't want you to bring him your best efforts. He wants you to bring him all of your sin. Verse 32, He, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. As Fleming Rutledge wrote, I think I probably quote this every Easter because it's so good. She says, With all due respect to the religions of the world, there is no other story like the Christian story. The Christian God is the one who has come down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh and of his own free will and decision has come under his own judgment in order to deliver us from everlasting condemnation and bring us into eternal life. He has not required human sacrifice. He has become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us. He himself was turned over and forsaken. Friends, Jesus has ended your trial. He's been charged guilty. He was sentenced to death so that you can be free from any condemnation. That's why it says at the beginning of Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you must be in Christ Jesus to have that. He is the only way to end that trial. It means you need to look in faith to him to stop resting on your own efforts, stop trying to do more, stop trying to mount another defense for why you're better than people say you are, and you say, actually, I'm more screwed up than you realize. I'm going to stop lying to myself. I'm going to admit how addicted I am to these things and how my heart is so twisted. And I'm going to recognize that it required the flawless, perfect one to die in order to set me free from that verdict. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, you will not be in that saving love of God. You'll have to face the justice on your own. Do you want to live the rest of your life in a court trying to prove you're not that bad? Or do you want to rest in the knowledge that Jesus has paid it all And now there is no condemnation left for you. This brings us to our second point, the resurrection. You may have noticed in the middle of these verses, Paul adds this comment, Christ Jesus who died, but then he says, but more than that, who was raised to life. And I realize that the idea of resurrection, if we're honest, sounds kind of silly to us. Like, do people actually believe that? Because I've never met anyone that was dead and then actually came back to life. And yet, I've also learned that so many people reject the Christian story of resurrection without having wrestled with some of the evidence there. And even though it is hard to believe, even though we say, this is not normal, it, I think, is the best explanation for what happened. There's all kinds of little clues. We won't get into them here, but just a few, like 
women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection in every gospel account. And back then, a woman's testimony was often just dismissed outright or wouldn't be allowed in court. And so if you were trying to make up a story to get people to believe it, you wouldn't have women be the first eyewitnesses because it would be too easy to dismiss. Well, why would you have that in the story? Well, if it actually happened that way, and you're forced to keep it in like that, or the radical change we see in the disciples who are cowering and running away from Jesus as he's arrested and they think their movement is over and they deny even knowing him. And then all of a sudden we see them later on in their lives being willing to die for him. And why would they change like that if their founder had been conquered by the Romans? Well, maybe he actually came back to life and showed them they don't need to fear death. Now, I'd be happy to talk with you more or encourage you to look into some of the claims of the resurrection, but what I want you to notice is that why, or what I want to look at is why does the resurrection matter? Why does Paul say the resurrection means no one can bring a charge against you? Well, think about it in that legal sense. If someone walks out of jail, what does that mean? They have served their sentence and now they've been set free. And so Christ walking out of the tomb is the evidence that Christ has paid the full penalty for every one of our sins, and now he is free. If Christ remained in the grave, well, someone could bring that charge and say, well, Christ did 98% of it, but look, he's still dead. He's still serving that sentence. You need to add to it. But because Jesus walked out of the jail of death, It is the proof that when it comes to your sins, every past, present, future, one of them, from God's perspective, it has been marked paid in full. I also want you to notice that little detail halfway through verse 34. He is now at the right hand of God. To be at the right hand of God is to be in a position of rule and authority and power. In his resurrection, Christ was then crowned King. The resurrection is the inauguration of a new king of the world, and his rule is now being manifest throughout the world. In another passage, Paul writes that Christ's resurrection was like the first fruits of our resurrection. Who here has tulips or daffodils in their yard? Yeah, many of us. And who here has seen those leaves poking through the winter ground? And what do you do when you first see those leaves coming out of the ground after a very long winter, you feel joy. It's one of the first signs of spring. Spring is coming. And then we get a foot of snow. Now, does that mean spring isn't gonna make it? Because you cannot see those little tulip leaves poking out of the ground. That we're gonna be stuck in an eternal winter. Some of you felt that way. But those tulip leaves speak a truth that is deeper than the 12 inches of snow that is covering them. Spring is coming, and the snow can't stop it. Those tulips will outlast the snow, and they are the promise that more flowers are on the way. And that is what Paul says the resurrection of Christ is. The tulips, the first tulips of a coming spring, the first fruits of a great harvest, that Christ's resurrection speaks a truth that is deeper than death and suffering. 
that Christ's ascension to heaven will outlast the darkest days of winter. So every time you look at the tulips this season, let it remind your soul that resurrection is coming. The resurrection of Christ was that first act of a new creation. Our creation got infected by sin. It affects everything from the fact that we have weeds to the fact that we get sick and we suffer and we die. But Jesus was God's first act of making a new creation where death is a shadow and sorrow will be no more. It'll be a world where your back no longer aches when you wake up in the morning, where you don't need to lock your doors at night and there's no more bad dreams. Isaiah 25 gives us a picture of this new creation world that says the Lord will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. And there God will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against the land and its people. And you see, friends, Christ's resurrection is the first tulip of that new creation that is breaking into our world, and it tells you an eternal spring is coming. It will not be this way forever. So then let's move to our third point. What are the implications of the resurrection? What do you do when the calendar says it's spring, but you wake up to a foot of new snow? What do you trust? Your feelings, what you see, or that written word on the calendar? And you see, the resurrection is God's mark on the universe's calendar that spring is here. It's the first tulip out of the winter ground, and it speaks a truth that is deeper than the snow that has covered it. God's love is deeper than your greatest sins. Think about it just this way. What did Christ do on the cross? He took the sins of the world, billions and billions of people's sins poured on him. He became then, in that sense, the worst sinner that ever lived, right? Because he had your sin and my sin and everyone's sin who is in Christ. And yet, even though that made him the worst of sinners, God's love was stronger, and he did not leave the worst of sinners in the grave, but he resurrected him to new life, saying, these sins have been paid in full. You cannot out the grace of God. The resurrection shows how much God loves you. He did not spare his son, but gave him up. People often give the advice, don't give something for free because then people won't value it. You've probably all received things for free from, you know, a, a coworker or your grandma or whatever, right? And you don't really want it, but you feel obligated to take it. We are not something that God passed off onto Jesus and said, here, you take him. And Jesus said, okay. But we are God's treasured possession. And how do you know that? Because of what he paid to have us. God paid the blood of his innocent, perfect, 
beautiful son. He did not spare him, but gave him up in order to have you. And why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Because having you was worth it. Isaiah 53, when he, Christ, sees all that he has accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. Jesus doesn't regret how he has suffered to have you. He sees you and says it was totally worth it. And then this is why Paul says, if God did this, how will he not then take care of everything else that we need? We have a lot of pregnant moms in the congregation right now, right? And imagine after carrying your child for nine months and then going through labor, giving birth to her, that when you're discharged for the hospital, you forget to bring her with you. <laughs> that would never happen, right? You spend 10 minutes paranoid about getting the car seat just right so that they're, you know, be safe on that 10-minute drive home. You aren't going to forget your child after you went through all of that. How will much more will God not forget you after everything he's done to have you? It means that Christ knows your pain. The text says God did not spare Christ. He did not spare him one ounce of suffering. He did not spare him the condemnation of the Father. He did not spare him any tears. It means that Christ knows the deepest of suffering. He knows what it is like to be betrayed. He knows what it is like to be forsaken. He knows what it is like to only have tears for food. One commentator wrote, if we fix our eyes on the place where the course of the world reaches its lowest point, where its groanings are most bitter, we shall encounter there Jesus Christ. On the frontier of what is observable, he stands delivered up and not spared. In the place of us all, he stood there, delivered up for us, patently submerged in the flood. Easter means that whatever you face, God's love is stronger. That's why you can be more than a conqueror. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Easter is the proof that God's love has conquered sin and death. And nothing in this world, nor even hell itself, can pull you out of God's hands because his love is stronger. What is it that you face? What worries are you carrying? What wounds still haunt you? Friends, God's love is stronger than that. And even if those fears become a reality... And if those anxieties manifest themselves as nails driven into your hands and feet and you die crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're left in the tomb for dead. God's love is stronger. Because three days later, after darkness had covered the earth and the earth shook and the tomb was cold, hope broke in on that first Easter morning. And God displayed that no suffering and not even death itself 
can conquer the love of God. And Jesus walked out of that tomb. And he announced to the universe, spring is coming. So what are you going to do? What are you going to believe? How are you going to live your life? Are you tired of living in the courtroom? Are you tired of turning from one distraction to another knowing they help you get by through the day, but they don't fill you? Do you have this feeling that there's something more to life? Do you long for the bread of life? Simone Weil, this French philosopher who wrestled with Christianity in her short life, wrestled with that very thing. She said, the danger is not lest the soul should believe whether there is any bread, but lest by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. And how many of us go through our life telling ourselves, oh, I'm not hungry. I'm not hungry. I don't need anything more. But then she says, it can only persuade itself of this by lying, for the reality of hunger is not a belief, it is a certainty. And I think that I could say for every single one of us here, there is something deep in all of us, because we were made in the image of God, that is hungry for something more. Hungry for a bread that will satisfy. And yet again and again we turn to diversions. She goes on to say, we all know there is no true good here below, that everything that appeared to be good in this world is finite, limited, worn out, and once worn out, leaves us exposed in all of its nakedness. But then what does we often do, she says? As soon as we see this truth, we just cover it up with more lies. What are you going to do today? Try to get by in your world with more lies? Or come to the bread of life, Christ himself, and have your soul fed and be made new. And see how the resurrection speaks of a reality that is deeper than the pain and the suffering that you face today. And you see, one day God will roll up this world like an old rug. And Revelation tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout saying, look, God's home is now among his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or crying or sorrow or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And in that day, friends, those of you, when you look to Christ, you will see spring in all of its beauty. And the sun will rise with healing in its rays. And you will look at all the scars of your life that mark the suffering and the things that you have dealt with. But you will discover that those things have been transformed from markers of your pain into testaments of his faithfulness, that his love is stronger, and that you will see through the love of God in Christ Jesus, you are more than a conqueror in whatever you face through Christ our Lord. And that is the future reality, and because that is more sure than the snow that had blanketed our earth, 
it is true for you today. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us recognize this profound truth because I know myself and every one of us here, we are drugged down by the darkness in our world and in our own hearts. And Father, we feel victims in so many ways. We feel as if the world is against us and we turned all kinds of things to numb that sinking feeling that we're not enough. And we ask that in these moments you would set us free, set the people here free from the lies and the burdens to acknowledge, maybe for the first time, who they are, that we're not right, but to then see the one who is and his arms that are open for us. So we pray all these things in Christ our Lord. Amen.